Welcome to the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pfeffer, a professor at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, an author of 16 books on a range of topics, including the topic of my oversubscribed MBA class and this podcast, Power. Every other week, I talk to someone about their path to power and provide you with practical guidance about how to accelerate your career. Today's guest is the famous Matt Abrams. Matt is a lecturer at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, which makes him a colleague of mine, and I'm pleased to know him. He has published a book. He's actually published several. One of his first book, I think it's his first book, was called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, a book written to help the millions of people who suffer from anxiety around speaking in public, which is basically everyone. His most recent book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter, and he also does a podcast which is called Think Fast, Talk Smart. He teaches a course, Essentials of Strategic Communication, and Rule three in Seven Rules of Power, my recent book on power, my fourth book on power, actually, rule three is to appear powerful. Appearing powerful is all about how you show up and how you communicate. In season one of the Pfeffer on Power podcast, I had as one of my guests, Dana Carney, who's writing a book about body language. In season two, I wanted to get, and I'm thankful for you being here, Matt, to talk about principles of strategic communication, how to speak in ways that cause people to pay attention to, listen to, and take into account who you are and what the message is that you're giving. So Matt, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here. Well, Jeff, it is a true pleasure to be with you. I look forward to continuing the many conversations you and I have had on campus. And when you were a guest on my podcast, we had a lovely conversation. And it'll be fun to continue that today. I want to focus our conversation on really two, I think, important themes. The first theme is the title of your first book. I think it is really an important topic. Many people, I mean, people talk in public all the time. If you're a salesperson, if you're a CEO, if you're an investor relations, almost every managerial leadership job involves presenting to employees, to customers, to the public at large. And many people, most people probably, are extraordinarily intimidated by that prospect. So what is your advice to help people get over this fear of public speaking? You're right. It's ubiquitous. We have some evidence that upwards of 75, 85% of people report it as a major issue that they have. And quite frankly, I think the rest of the people are lying. I think we could create a situation that would make them nervous too. The goal, I don't think, is to overcome it. I don't think we ever truly can overcome it. Those of us who study this believe it's innate to being human to have this anxiety, but there are certainly things we can do to manage it. And when it comes to managing anxiety, you can look at it as a two-pronged approach. First, you have to deal with the symptoms that we experience, the rapid heart rate, the sweaty brow, the shakiness, but you also have to address the sources of anxiety, the things that initiate and exacerbate it. It's a two-pronged approach. So, for example, to manage symptoms, deep belly breathing is perhaps the best thing you can do to calm the autonomic nervous system that's 
causing a lot of these things to initiate in the first place. And when I say deep belly breathing, I'm talking about what you might do if you do yoga or Tai Chi, where you really fill your lower abdomen. And the key, Jeff, is that the exhale needs to be longer than the inhale. It is the exhale where all the magic happens. So I like to joke the rule of thumb or the rule of lung is you want your exhale to be twice as long as the inhale. And there are a whole bunch of other things we can do to manage symptoms, the shakiness, the dry mouth, the sweatiness. Managing those symptoms help us as a nervous communicator to feel more confident and it removes some of the tells that we show to others that signal we're nervous. And I know you know it more than I do about tells and signs that can affect status and power. So managing those symptoms is critical, but we also have to look at sources, the things that initiate it, and there are many. I'll give you one. Many of us are made nervous by the goal we're trying to achieve. When we communicate, when we interact, we often have goals, and it is the fear of not achieving that goal that can make us very nervous. And if you think about it, a goal is nothing more than a desired future outcome. So what's making us nervous is our concern over a future state. Maybe it's getting funding for what we're trying to do. Maybe it's getting a project supported for our students. It's getting a good grade. If we can become present oriented, focus in the moment, rather than worried about the future, we can reduce our anxiety based on our fear of not achieving our goal. So how do you become more present-oriented? Lots of things you can do. One, you can remind yourself you're in service of your audience. You need to connect with them, make your content relevant. That means you're focusing on the now, not what's next. You could do what athletes do, listen to a song or a playlist before you do your, your activity. You can do something as simple as start at 100 and count backwards by a challenging number like 17s. That brings you into the present moment. So Managing anxiety is all about managing symptoms and sources, and there are many things we can do to do both. It takes time, it takes practice, but with that, you can build the confidence we need to be successful. So as you talked about managing symptoms, dry mouth, for instance, I see some speakers and many comedians I've seen recently use a water bottle. Yeah. Which both manages, obviously, the symptom of dry mouth, but also gives them something to do with their hands and some way of having a pause as they take the drink of water, whatever. Is that something that you sometimes recommend? Well, certainly. I, I actually use a water bottle for a whole different symptom to manage. But yes, so obviously getting some liquid is important. I warn people about using tools like a water bottle or a pen or a pointer because we futz and fiddle with them. And that can actually signal more anxiety. So I actually worked with somebody who in the midst of doing a high stakes presentation, completely disassembled a pen to the point where the spring shot out. So <laughs> you have to worry about futzing and fiddling with things. But yes, there are things we can have in our context and our environment that can help us. But some things get in the way. For example, standing behind a lectern, a podium of some sort, that actually puts distance and, and affects immediacy, which can impact how people feel about you. It restricts your movement. Many of us just stay behind there. It's a shield from the audience. So we have to be careful with what we, we use in our environment. Now, I'll share with you what I do with a water bottle. I perspire and blush when I get nervous. That's the biggest thing that impacts me. And it makes sense. When you're nervous, your heart beats faster, your body tenses up, so your blood pressure goes up. It's like you're exercising. That's why we get sweaty and blush. So we need to cool ourselves down. Many, many years ago, some of our colleagues at Stanford in the biology department 
found that you can improve performance and reduce anxiety by cooling the body down. So I hold a cold bottle of water in the palm of my hand before I speak, not while, and it actually brings my core body temperature down. I sweat and perspire less. We've all done this in reverse on a cold morning. If you've ever held warm coffee or tea in a cup in your hands and felt it warm you up. So I use a water bottle for something different. I think context can help. There are things we can do to help reduce that anxiety, but it can also invite anxiety signs. Okay. And in your second part of focusing on the moment, which I think is also important, I think one of the things that I try to teach my students, and I'd be interested in your reaction, is that the students believe because of our basic fundamental egocentricity, that people are going to pay more attention to them and remember what they do way more than, in fact, they actually do. And so what I often tell students is that the stakes are not as high as you think because what you are focusing on and you think you've done a horrible job and you think all kinds of things, people are going to forget you and what you've said much more quickly than you think. And so therefore, don't take it so seriously. So I like the gist of what you're saying. I actually have found in my work that telling people that, hey, people aren't going to remember what you say actually stresses them out more. Oh. So what I like to, to do is to remind people that your job as a communicator is to create messages that resonate by being relevant, salient, and accessible such that you increase the likelihood that they'll remember it. We have to remember the Maya Angelou quote that people remember how you make them feel more than what you say and focus on that as well. So it's more on what you can do rather than what's not happening in the moment. So you're right. People don't remember much of what we say. Now, there are things we can do to be more engaging, to make our content more relevant so our audience is more likely to remember more than usual. But again, I would focus on making it accessible, making it salient, making it relevant to really help us. I'd be interested in your reaction to one other thing. When Deb Grunfeld did her YouTube video based on a talk that she did to the alumni, she talked about something which I've heard many times, which is people respond mostly to how you look, secondly, to how you sound, and by far the least important to the content of what you say. So that the message, the implicit message of that is you need to focus on your body language and how you project as much as you do on the content of your message. Do you agree with that? We absolutely have to focus on both. Many of us, either out of panic that we don't know our material or out of wanting to memorialize what we say, we invest a lot and I think over-index on the content and not think about how we deliver it. If you ask most people, how do you prepare? They will tell you that they spend a lot more time on crafting the content, designing the slides. Mind you, they don't test it out. They don't practice it, whereas they need to balance the time. So in the first book I wrote, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, I give a very simple heuristic. Take the date you have to present or run the meeting or be on the panel, divide it by two from the today's date, and hopefully it's not tomorrow. The first half of the time is spent crafting content testing out the content. The second half of that time is practicing it, preparing it, digitally recording yourself, getting feedback. Because as Deb says, it is critical how we say something matters a lot. And we just don't spend the time practicing. I know you do a lot around nonverbals. In my class, our students, when they have to present, 
we actually have them digitally recorded and they watch their recordings not once, not twice, but three times. Once they watch only, no sound. Second, they listen only, no watching. And third, all together. And it is in that experience, as painful as it is, that they learn so much. And it reinforces the importance of how you say what you say. That's good. Okay, so now let's turn very briefly to your second and most recent book, First of all, I think the title is interesting. How did you come up with the title, Think Faster, Talk Smarter? Well, yeah, I'm not very creative, Jeff. I mean, the podcast, which has had some success, is called Think Fast, Talk Smart. Now, that has an interesting story, how we came up with that title. But we wanted to extend the work that we do on the podcast. So the podcast is generically about communication and honing and developing skills. And the book is specifically about what I call spontaneous speaking, speaking in the moment, answering questions, giving feedback making apologies for mistakes we make, doing small talk. So it's a derivative of, so it was just easier to put the ER at the end, and it meant I didn't have to be very creative. That's okay. I think you're actually quite creative, and and the title is creative as well. What are some of the tips that you give people? Because you are right. I mean, for every time we have a scheduled presentation, we have probably 10 or 20 or maybe even 100 instances in which you're in a meeting and you have to respond in the moment to what is going on. Or you're in a meeting and somebody's attacked you. Or you're the Harvard president or now the ex-Harvard president getting grilled by some Congress people. So that's very much in the moment. We are very much more spending our time in the moment responding to things and trying to be persuasive in the moment than we are with prepared talks. So what are some of your tips about being more effective in the moment as you talk to people? You're absolutely right. We spend much more time speaking spontaneously than we do planned. And most people aren't trained in either, but certainly people aren't learning skills about how to speak in the moment. And that's really important. So The book and the methodology, and by the way, the methodology is a direct result of our students. So about nine years ago, the deans that were in place at the time came to me and they said, we have a problem. Our very bright students are struggling with cold calls. They're not able to answer them effectively. And they said, is there something I could do? And that's where this methodology was born. And all of our MBA students within the first three weeks of being on campus have the opportunity to take a workshop that walks through this methodology. And we've been able to track and see that students who go through this actually feel more comfortable and confident responding in the moment. And the professors that teach the core, which is fundamental to what they all take, have noticed a difference as a result. So how do you do it? Well, two counterintuitive notions. One, we can all get better at our spontaneous speaking. Many of us feel like I'm either got it or I don't. I'm born with the gift of gab or I'm not. I am here to tell you, you can absolutely get better at it. It's absolutely a skill. Many things are skills, and this is clearly a skill. Absolutely. You're 100% right. And then the other counterintuitive notion is that you can actually prepare to be spontaneous. And that sounds weird, but in fact, you can. If you ever, if you think of an athlete, athletes prepare to be spontaneous. They do a whole bunch of drills. They do a whole bunch of practice. And then when they go out on the court or the pitch or the field, they then are being spontaneous, but they're using those skills that they develop. So How do we do it? There's a whole methodology. Let me highlight some of the parts. The first step is managing anxiety. If you are nervous, it inhibits your ability to communicate full stop. So we have to manage that. Beyond that, we have to do some mindset shifts. Many of us 
worry about not doing our communication right. We want to be perfect. We want to do it right. And I'm here to tell you, after doing this for decades, there is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways, but there is no one right way. And by fixating on trying to do it right, we actually get in the way of doing it well at all. It's all a bandwidth issue, cognitive bandwidth. We only have so much bandwidth. And if part of that bandwidth is dedicated to hyperjudgment, hyperevaluation, we have less effort to put into what we're saying. So I like to say it's about connection, not perfection. Communication is about connection, making it relevant. So that's after we manage anxiety, that's where we have to go. We also have to remind ourselves that these are opportunities. I know you do a lot of work with actors and improvisers. The, the notion of communication as an opportunity comes directly from the world of improv. Yes, and. And if we see somebody asking a question, even if it's hostile, is an opportunity to connect, to share, to learn, it's much better than getting defensive and tight and reactive. We have to listen well. Again, another counterintuitive notion that to speak better, you have to listen well. So we have to listen well so we can respond appropriately. Many of us jump to heuristic processing when it comes to communication, and we need to be paying attention to respond appropriately. And then most importantly, I think after we deal with anxiety, the second most important thing is to leverage structure. Many of us, when we do in-the-moment speaking, take our audiences on a journey of our discovery of what we're thinking about as we're thinking about it, <laughs> which means we talk way too much and we itemize and list things and our brains are not wired for lists. In fact, Jeff, how many items do you need to buy from the grocery store before you need to create a list? For me, it's like four. I can't remember anything beyond that. Imagine somebody who's listing out information. We just aren't built for that. So a structure, a logical beginning, middle, and an end, like a story, can really help. So having a structure is key. It keeps you concise. It keeps you focused. So if we manage anxiety, connect rather than worry about being perfect, make sure that we see things as opportunities, not threats, we listen well, and we use structure, those are the keys to being better at speaking in the moment. The only thing you didn't talk about, and I'll ask you this, and it's interesting. So Chip and Dan Heath in their first book, Made to Stick, talk a lot about using examples or stories. And I assume you probably agree with that. So if I'm going to speak up, even in a relatively short answer, I want to make it concrete. Many people, I think, speak in way too abstract a way. You're 100% right. So, and I love that book. In fact, when people ask me, what is the single best book on communication? I tell them that book even though I like my books, because I think that book is fantastic. You are absolutely right. So to me, what they're talking about in their book, everybody listening in should read this book. They're talking about the content that goes within the structures I'm speaking of. So the structure provides a roadmap. What they're talking about are the specific destinations or things you pass on that journey. So they do not suggest just list one story after another story. No, no. It's in a structure that you use story. So the way you support a structure is really threefold. Testimonials, third-party voices, through examples and stories, and through data. And what their book talks about is how to make those testimonials, those examples, that data really stick. So it's in complete simpatico with what I'm talking about. It's just one layer down. It's how we make things engaging. Well, I wanted to, to pursue that and thank you for that wonderful answer. So I think we're out of time. I want to thank my guest, Matt Abrams, 
for coming on the Pfefferon Power podcast and sharing his amazing insights on strategic communication and how to be a more effective communicator. And one of the objectives of this podcast is to make sure you can get a lot of the wisdom being imparted at Stanford without paying the tuition. And (laughs) you have done a great job of putting people in your class without having to show up in Palo Alto. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Let's hope the deans don't come after us for that. But no, it's been a true pleasure, Jeff, to continue our conversation. Uh, Best of luck. And I look forward to learning more from you as I have in the past. This has been the Pfeffer on Power podcast, where every other week we talk to an accomplished individual about their path to power and the practical lessons for you. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite sources and buy my most recent book on power, Seven Rules of Power. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and jeffreypfeffer.com. Pfeffer on Power is a production of Stanford University and University FM.